Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colourful character is Rob Hughes. And we've got a special announcement, haven't we, Bob? We have, Mark. So, to start, thank you for taking so much interest in our journey through the life of David Bowie. It's a long and winding road. That's the Beatles, not Bowie, Bob. It's a long and winding road, but we don't look back in anger. Oasis? We look back in anger. That's more like it. Oh, shut up. Anyway, we've got some news for you. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. (laughs) Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Why? So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. R is for Rainbow, the Rainbow Theatre. Originally known as the Astoria Theatre, it's a Grade 2 listed building in Finsbury Park in London. Built as a cinema in 1930, it later became known as a music venue, is now a church for the Pentecostal Group. Former stage manager Rick Burton has published a website with a detailed history of who's performed at the theatre and when. Well worth having a look, by the way. And when it opened in 1930, the Astoria Cinema was one of the largest in the world. Standing at the junction of Isleston Road and Seven Sisters Road on an island site, it was the fourth of the famous London suburban Astoria theatres built by film exhibitor Arthur Siegel. It was opened on the 29th of September 1930. It was in use as a cinema until September 1971 when it was permanently given over to live music, although rock concerts had been a feature throughout the 60s. In December 1930, the Astoria was taken over by Paramount Pictures and it was taken over again on the 27th of November 1939 by Oscar Deutsch's Odeon Theatres Limited. So, the music venue, 1960s. One-night concerts were held on the stage in the 1960s, with the building becoming one of the premier music venues in the capital. It was at this theatre that Jimi Hendrix first burnt a guitar with the collusion of his manager, Chaz Chandler, and a journalist from The Enemy. Hendrix proceeded to set fire to his Fender Strat on the 31st of March, 67, on the opening night of the Walker Brothers tour, resulting in a hospital appointment for Hendrix's burnt fingers. Mm, So the Beach Boys album, Live in London, was recorded there in 1968. Renamed Odeon on the 17th of November, 1970, the theatre was closed by the rank organisation on the 25th of September, 1971, with Bill Travers in Gorgo and Hayley Mills in Twisted Nerve. Oh, okay. The Odeon was converted into the Rainbow Theatre from the 4th of November, 1971, when The Who performed in the first concert in the newly named venue who later wrote and recorded the song Long Live Rock which celebrates the theatre although still it refers to it as the Astoria The Osmonds made their debut appearance in London at the Rainbow Theatre in the early 70s I didn't know that Frank Zappa had serious injuries in the evening of the 10th of December 1971 when a member of the audience a guy called Trevor Howells ran up the side steps of the stage and pushed him off 
causing him to fracture a leg and cut his head. Zappa was in hospital for six weeks. That is a really kind of nasty, notorious incident, isn't it? There is, and there's also a story about Lou Reed playing at the Rainbow. Oh, and yeah. at one point, I mean, not known for chuckling. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. Uh, uh, he just he just started chuckling to himself. And yeah. uh, it was because he remembered that Frank Zappa had fallen down the pit and That's really right. hurt himself. <laughs> That's how much he didn't like mm. Frank Zappa. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, the Faces performed there in 1972, the February of... Pink Floyd played a four-night stand at the venue during the beginning of their Eclipse tour, on which its main set is mostly known as the pre-Dark Side of the Moon set from 17th to 20th of February, 72. The list, right, it's not endless, but, I mean, it's very, very impressive. It is. Uh, I like this one, yeah. On the 31st of March, 1974, Queen played a concert from the Queen 2 tour. The show marked Queen's entry into the big scene of music with the rainbow representing their goal concerning live performances at the time. I've got my own little story about it, but, yeah, it was just a legendary, iconic venue, wasn't it? It's something that you would aim for. Yes. Get to the rainbow, you're on your way, definitely. Now then, June the 1st, 1974, is an album of the uh, collaborative performance at the rainbow by Kevin Ayers, John Cale, Nico and Brian Eno. Other musicians, including Mike Oldfield and Robert Wyatt, also contributed to the gig. Kevin Ayers then returned six months later on the 1st of December to play a concert with his own band. So yeah, that album, June the 1st, 1974, there's yes. a John Cale song called Guts, isn't there? There is, yes. And it's, uh, the opening line is a bugger in the short sleeves, mm, my wife. Yeah, which is aimed at uh, Kevin Ayers, which is, well, it, it's a true story, isn't it's it? It's aimed at Kevin Ayers, <laughs> who was aiming at John Cale's wife. Not what he was aiming, I couldn't possibly say, but right. yeah, it is a legendary story. Yes. So the building was closed permanently in 1982, although there were plans for its conversion to a bingo hall. Following the closure of the Rainbow Theatre on the 24th of December 1981, it was designated a listed building, but lay empty and largely disused for the next 14 years. It was used occasionally in unlicensed boxing matches, most notably in April 1986, when Lenny McLean beat Roy Shaw in a dramatic first-round knockout. Oh, in 1995, the building was taken over by its current owners, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, a Brazilian Pentecostal church. The auditorium restoration was the last phase to be completed in 1999. Theatre is now the main base for UCKG in the UK. Another music venue, incidentally, the Sir George Roby stood opposite the Rainbow. I played the Sir George Roby and I didn't see the Rainbow when I did it. Really? So it was well, probably, a, probably a winter's night, got oh. out of the back of the van, straight in the back door, but I would have just gone and had a gorp. Right. I, I have been there, like I say, I'll bore people with that in a short while. So we're on to the Bowie connection now. So 1971, Sunday, the 7th of November, David Bowie takes the spiders from Mars to see Alice Cooper at the Rainbow to give them an idea as to how theatrics in rock could work. Very important night, that. Definitely. June 1972 now, Bowie, Iggy Pop, Mick Rock go to see Alice Cooper again, this time at Wembley. After the show, they meet him, and this is a bigger show, which is what really whetted Bowie's appetite for all those onstage theatrics and antics. Yeah, so Bowie performed two concerts at the Rainbow during his Ziggy Stardust tour on the 19th and 20th of August 1972. So it was like his first theatrical outing, though. Yeah. Having seen uh, Alice Cooper gave him some ideas. Mm. He didn't go for the shock, did he? I no. mean, not, not in the kind of horrific, kind of uh, Halloween-y kind of style but yeah, and it just made him ambitious, didn't it? Definitely it did. So, 12th of August now, three days rehearsals for Lindsay Kemp and the Five Strong Troop to a backing tape at the Rainbow. 16th of August, three more days rehearsal for two shows. I mean, it's really, really preparation here, Mark. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose that the like, yeah, the choreography and all that had yeah. to be done at one point, and then the band joined them at a later stage, as far as I can make out. Yeah, there was a tremendous amount of scaffolding on the stage. The astronauts and Lindsay Kemp performed alongside Bowie. Massive ladders as well, too, weren't there? Uh, health and safety, you would imagine, could not pass that. I think, days. I mean, personally speaking, I think they should have made Lindsay Kemp and the troop wear hard hats, but, you yeah. know, that's it was a different age. It wasn't was, it? Mate, yeah, and probably high vis jackets. 
dates as well. So the 19th and 20th of August, two shows. They are legendary. And uh, as are the George Underwood concert programme, there's a transfers of the Ziggy, Lady Stardust, Weird and Gillian yeah. Starman as well. And of course, there are the uh, the enamel badges of those as well, some of oh. which I've got. Terry Pasta, who'd worked on Bowie's Hunky Dory album and the Ziggy covers, said that Ziggy backstage was like a Fellini movie. Uh, normal during the day, strange cosmic people at night. David was surrounded by a lot of weird characters. Apparently, Tony DeFeese upset Bowie by saying that he didn't think that the Lindsay Kemp element of the whole show worked, which uh, would have upset Bowie enormously because, yeah. you know, it, that's one of those things in it where you can see it's trying things out here and being mm. very brave and ambitious with mm. not much money. Like I say, I mean, it looks like it does just look like scaffolding. Yeah, it just looks all a bit half-baked from the photos that you see. But nobody else was doing that, were no, they? No. So, I mean, and of course, that was a prototype, really, for what would become Hunger City yeah. on the Diamond yeah, Dog Store. definitely. Anyway, moving on, Ian Hunter from Motley Hooper was there too, and he later said Elton John left the show early because he didn't like it either. But that might have well been driven by jealousy <laughs> rather than art. Oh, we can speculate, can't we, Mark? We can. Anyway, to the 24th of December now, 1972, Ziggy and the Spiders return to the rainbow. This was with the instruction, wasn't it? Please bring a toy with you. It'll be given to a children's home. It's a great thing to do, isn't it? You know, a nod to the head of uh, David's dad. He worked for Bernardo's, didn't he? So that charity aspect was there from the start. Definitely. David recalled this batch of shows and the rainbow gig fondly in Mick Rock's book, Moon Age Daydream. It's down there. We put in a short tour of the UK between December and January 1972-1973. It was always a great buzz to come back home, and this was probably one of the best, highest energy jaunts of our short 18-month life. That's all it was. 18 months. Yeah, it is really short. You forget that, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Uh, so this now is from Andy Barding of Signet Committee with contributions from Woodyward Mansey. So he says, uh, "'Twas the night before Christmas, 1972, and in a North London concert hall, David Bowie was making it a night to remember, and not just for his fans. When tickets for the Christmas Eve show at the Rainbow Theatre were put on sale, David made a public appeal for concert goers to bring toys with them as a charity donation. The response was fantastic, as David's drummer, Woodyward Mansey, remembers." So this is uh, what Woody says. David's toy appeal created more response than we could have imagined. There was a huge truckload of stuff. We hadn't done anything like that since Save the Whale benefit concert much earlier on at the Royal Festival Hall. The very next day, Christmas morning, the goodwill mountain of toys and games that had stacked up in the venue's foyer was distributed to appreciative youngsters in children's homes across London. David was delighted. His father, who had passed away three years earlier, had been a PR man at Dr. Bernardo's Homes, so this was a cause close to his heart. And at this point in time, Bob, I would like to say hello to Andy Barding, because he's a top fella, he knows loads about Bowie. Uh, he's just a man of taste and a decent fella, so hello, mate. All right, so uh, this is Andy Barding again. He says, This sold-out rainbow concert marked a triumphant homecoming for 25-year-old David and his band, the Spiders from Mars. They'd just returned from nearly three months on the road in America, and their absence from Britain had made homegrown hearts grow a lot, lot fonder. Enemy writer and seasoned David Bowie concert-goer Charles Shaw Murray was taken aback by the frenzied audience reception. Just for the record, they've started screaming at David Bowie, he wrote. He continued, At the Rainbow on Christmas Eve, young girls were reaching out for our hero's supple limbs and squealing in the customary manner. Whether it's Bowie mania or Ziggy mania or a combination of the two, it's not yet apparent. But it was happening, definitely. Mm. Rival music paper Melody Maker hit the newsstands with a David Bowie-dominated Christmas issue that same week. David was crowned their main man of 1972 and voted top vocalist in the end-of-year poll. The rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars album, which sold close to 200,000 copies in the UK and the US during 72, was declared the MM's critic's choice. 
So those who attended the Rainbow were treated to a spectacular new live set kicked off by Let's Spend the Night Together, featuring David playing his new VCS3 Moog synth and a bonus attraction that they were the first people in Britain to hear new boy Mike Garson on piano. Ooh, what a treat. This was quickly followed by a razor-edged Hang On To Yourself, which Charles Shell Murray enthusiastically reported was played better than I've ever heard it, and this in spite of David having only just got over a bout of Asian flu. In a radical break from the regular Ziggy Show format, this festive concert did away with the half-time acoustic session in favour of an all-out electric experience. We had worked hard in the US, said Woody, and I think it had evolved into a rockier show. It was nice to get back to the UK and a perfect way to end the year with a new set. Charles Shaw Murray agreed. He said that American tour has really honed the spiders to perfection. The show is tougher, flashier and more manic than it's ever been before. Let's all hope it was worth the £2.50 ticket price or £1.50 for a cheap seat in the circle, Mark. That is quite dear, actually. I mean, I paid 50 pence, I think, to see Mott the Hoople like about four months later. Right, so, OK, fair there enough. you go. Anyway, no, 10 months later, probably. Uh, the concert ended late, and this being Christmas Eve and the early 70s, night buses and trains were few and far between. By the time the gig ended with Rock and Roll Suicide, all underground train services had stopped. OK, so most Bowie freaks had to either walk home or shell out for taxis. At least one silver lame clad fan spent the night curled up in a Finsbury Park shop doorway and it's worth clarifying that this was the only London concert by Bowie and the Spiders in December 72. So when Christmas Eve tickets sold out pretty much instantly, efforts were made to book the venue for an extra show on the previous day, December the 23rd, but ultimately it couldn't be done. There were dramatic scenes at the stage door as the band made the way out that night. This is Woody, isn't it? He said, I do remember the fans outside the stage door as we exited. We had to actually push one over-enthusiastic fan who was brandishing a pair of scissors. As we came out, she lunged forward and attempted to secure a lock of Mick Ronson's hair and narrowly missed his left eye by a fraction of an inch. I mean, this was quite commonplace, wasn't it? Yeah, fans would turn up with scissors to get souvenirs. Crackers. Uh, Afterwards, David headed for his South London home where six Royal Mail sacks full of Christmas cards were waiting for him and the spiders were driven home to Yorkshire in a limo, though not by main man bodyguard Stewie George, as had been uh, previously documented, says Woody. It snowed all the way, he says, and we arrived at my mum's in the early hours and surprised them. How nice. And on Christmas Day, as hundreds of London kids unwrapped surprise presents from the generous David Bowie fans, the rest of the country settled down in front of the tellies to watch the traditional Christmas Top of the Pops and a repeat showing that now legend legendary Starman performance. Oh yeah, so as we know, 1972 had been a super stellar year for Bowie and the Spiders, and that Christmas, for a lot of reasons, can be considered the icing on the cake. So, I mean, it's just, uh, they were pivotal shows and legendary, and there's some really grainy but great footage of the uh, uh, rainbow appearances with Lindsay yeah. Kemp particularly. So, uh, yeah, the stuff of legend. And I got to play there, okay? So I can't remember what year it was. It might have been 1980. Uh, but it was a cure who invited the fall... Who else was on? The Passions were on there. I think maybe the Au Pairs. Ah, uh, yeah, I know the billing. Yeah, I've yeah. got the poster downstairs, yeah. and I see it often enough, so I should really know. But it's the kind of thing that you look at and don't really just pay any attention to. Yeah. And I actually found that poster once my dad had passed away, and he was clearing his house out, and I just found it folded up in a, in a cupboard in my old room. Wow. And okay. it was an amazing thing to get hold of. And uh, like I say, I've been and got it um, framed. Just because of the fact it was one of those things whereby... It happened at the Marquee, where you're playing, and you're thinking, actually, hang on a minute, this is a rainbow, this is where David Bowie stood. Yeah. That dressing room I've been in, David Bowie might have been in that, and I know it is kind of like real kind of fanboy kind of stuff, yeah, but, but you can't help it, you know. It's such an iconic moment, yeah, great. I'm, I'm jealous. Yeah, I'm jealous of me. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. 
R is for Russell Harty. Frederick Russell Harty, born the 5th of September 1934, died the 8th of June 1988. He was a British television presenter of arts programmes and chat shows. He was the son of Fred Harty, a fruit and vegetable stallholder on the local market in Blackburn, Lancashire, and Myrtle Rishton. He attended Queen Elizabeth's Grammar School on West Park Road, where he enjoyed appearing in school plays and met for the first time English teacher Ronald Eyre, who directed a number of the productions and thereafter at Exeter College in Oxford, where he got a degree in English Lit. On leaving university, Harty became an English and drama teacher in Giggleswick, North Yorkshire. I got a first-class degree and was an hopeless teacher. Russell Harty got a third-class degree and taught brilliantly, recalled his Oxford contemporary, Alan Bennett. Did you like the impersonation? <laughs> I thought he was in the room, Mark. Oh, it's <laughs> in scary. Keeping on, keeping on. Uh, have you ever been to Giggleswick? It's lovely. No, is it? Yeah, it's really right, gorgeous. I'll on go. the way to Skipton, if you go through Nelson. Anyway. I'll, I'll go. In 1964, Russell Harty started a year lecturing in English literature at the City University of New York, finally began his broadcasting career a few years later when he became a radio producer for the BBC Third programme reviewing arts and literature. He got his first break in 1970 presenting the arts programme Aquarius that was intended to be London Weekend TV's response to the BBC show Omnibus. He made a well-received documentary on Salvador Dali called Hello Dali, uh, which won an Emmy. Another award-winning documentary was Finn and Games about a Scottish community, Glenfinnan, where Bonnie Prince Charlie raised his standard to begin the Jacobite Rising of 1745 and its Highland Games. In 1972, Harty interviewed Mark Bolan, who at that time was at the height of his fame as a teen idol and King of Glamrock. During the interview, Harty asked Boland what he thought he would be doing when he was 40 or 60 years old and replied that he didn't think he'd live that long. And as we know, he died two weeks before his 30th birthday on the 16th of September 1977. He did, tragically. So in 1972, he was given his own series, Russell Harty Plus, which was later called just Russell Harty, conducting lengthy celebrity interviews on ITV, which placed him against the BBC's Parkinson. Parts of Russell Harty's interview with The Who in 1973 were included in Jeff Stein's 1979 film, The Kids Are All Right, providing notable moments such as Pete Townsend and Keith Moon ripping off each other's shirt sleeves. Yeah, that is memorable. Harty just doesn't know what to do. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because he never ever came across as a very natural interviewer. He always seemed a little bit kind of, well, very, very stuffy anyway as a person, but just a little bit awkward. He never felt relaxed at all. He was uptight, wasn't he? Yeah, very much so. Funnily enough, in 1975, he interviewed the French singer Claude Francois and was one of the first to acknowledge the fact that the Paul Anker song My Way was based on a French song of Claude's called Comme d'habitude. He won a Pi Television Award for the Most Outstanding New Personality of the Year in 1973 and Harty remained on ITV until 1980, at which point his show shifted over to the BBC. Uh, Harty interviewed the uh, Jamaican-American singer Grace Jones on the show in November that year after he'd interviewed her and turned away from her to address another guest, Jones appeared to become offended and started repeatedly hitting him. I mean, it's a weird setup because Harty, if you look at that, Harty's sat in the middle, isn't he? Should be on the end, so yeah. everybody's included. So he talks to Grace Jones and then she sat there and he does turn his back on her. There's two altercations on TV around about the same time which are notorious and that is one of them and mm. the other one is uh, Rod Hull and Emu getting Parkinson. That's right. Uh, so we'll have to, we need to do an A to Z of Rod Hull, mate. Oh, that'd be great. So the show ended in 1984. Harty was the subject of This Is Your Life in December 1980 uh, when he was surprised by Eamon Andrews at the London Department Store Selfridges. In 1988, Harter became ill with hepatitis B and started treatment at the St. James's University Hospital in Leeds. So now we get to his interaction with David Bowie. So this is from Kevin Cann's great book, Any Day Now, 
Wednesday, 17th of January, 1973. David records an appearance as a guest on chat show host Russell Harty's London weekend TV programme, Russell Harty Plus Pop, which also features Elton John and Georgie Fame with Alan Price. David is in yellow platform sandals and a flamboyant, brightly coloured suit designed specifically for the show by Freddie Barretti. This is a weird one. In the dressing room, he attempts to persuade Mick Woodmansey to wear it, but he refuses, so David matches a new clothing with a single chandelier earring, which he gives to Hartie at the end of the wow. show. Bowie wears the same suit to the premiere of the James Bond film Live and Let Die at the Odeon in Leicester Square, so I bet he was glad Woody didn't take it in the end, Mark. Yeah. Uh, Bowie admits to being very nervous. David and the Spiders perform new single Drive-In Saturday while David performs Jacques Brel's My Death Solo. Journalist Charles Char Murray is also at the TV studio shadowing David for a piece in The Enemy. Elton John seizes the opportunity to tell Trevor Boulder that he noticed the band's miscue on their recent Top of the Pops performance. Oh, that's a bit catty, isn't Just it? Just a little bit. This is funny. This is what Trevor Boulder said in 1995. Everyone thought it was me. Even Elton John mentioned it to me when we did the Russell Harty <laughs> show. The following day, the Daily Express publishes a feature on David by David Wig with the headline, Zowie, it's a mad, mad world of David Bowie. Or if you like, Zowie, it's a mad, mad world of David Bowie. Mm. Or if you like, Zowie, it's a mad, mad world of David oh, Bowie. Oh, stop it now, Mark. Saturday, the 20th of January, the programme is aired. It's Bowie's first interview on TV since a famous 1964 Tonight programme about the prevention of cruelty to long-haired men. Mm, Bowie talks of being a collector who takes on the guises of people he meets, of accents, a collector of personalities and ideas, a hodgepodge philosophy, as he calls it. Harty asks, do you believe in God? To which David replies, I believe in an energy form, but I wouldn't like to put a name to it. He says he worships life. He also says his fan mail is very sexy, some of it heavy duty, Mark. Two years later, there's a remarkably frosty and awkward, almost hostile exchange between Bowie in the USA and Russell Harty in London. And we've got we've got the transcription of it here, haven't we? We have, yeah. I mean, it's a weird one, just to set it up. So this was five days after Bowie had appeared on the Share Show on American TV. And at the same time, the Spanish government had asked for the satellite link to be kept free so they could officially announce the death of General Franco. But Bowie, as the story goes, refused to budge. Right. So it's him in Burbank, California. And it's, I mean, it's 1975, but it's a terrible satellite link. So you've still got the delay. And you've got Russell Harty being very uncomfortable and awkward, kind of perched on his seat there. And you just kind of feel for both of them. They just don't really communicate well at all. So this is November now, 1975. This is thanks to Golden Years website, by the way, for the uh, transcription. So, Rob, I'll be Davy Bowie if you don't mind. OK, I'll be Russell. So, uh, yes, how are you, Russell? It's nice to see you. Thank you. It's nice to see you, David. You look well. What colour is your hair? Which bit? The centre bit, the top, above where your nose should be. Well, it's... What colour does it look? Well, it looks a bit like something out of the end of Straw Dogs. Something out the end of Straw Dogs. So this is the opening exchange, and you think this is how it carries on. It sets the tone. Uh, Russell says, or I say, now, when you come back to England, you're not presumably coming back with the glammy, glittery Ziggy Stardust thing, are you? Uh-huh. Are you coming back as that? Oh, I don't know yet. I haven't worked on it. I think it will probably... It'll be a lot more spontaneous. So you haven't planned your wardrobe. You haven't planned a figure. You haven't planned an image, whatever that may mean. Right, what's brought you back? Are you short of money or are you short of the feeding off live audience bit? I'm short of England more than anything else. In what way? I mean, you do know the England you left two years ago is not the England you're about to come back to. Yeah, well, this Thursday is nothing like last Thursday, but it's just as important. I'd miss it if it wasn't after Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Russell says, now, you've been quoted as saying, David, but for someone who's not really a very good musician, you've made a lot of rumpus, a lot of noise. Yep. If you don't think you're a good musician, what are you looking at? What are you searching for? Got it. Treetop apple juice. This is just bizarre. Is it good? Will you spit some across the satellite? No. 
Just crackers, so isn't it's it? almost like they're just dancing around each other. Uh, later on, Russell says, right, now you finished making the film called The Man Who Came to Earth. Fell to Earth. Fell to Earth, I beg your pardon. It's not an easy film to explain to people who haven't seen it. And it's not yet finished, is it? It's finished in visual, but it's not finished in sound. I've got to record the sound. We've written a lot of it. It's, I tell you, all I can tell you is it's a love story more than anything else. It's very, very sad, very romantic. It brought a lump to my throat watching it, and it's been a gas working on it. Yeah. He says, how easily did you take to the discipline of filmmaking, which, as we all know, is a hard thing? Oh, quite easily. I'm a very disciplined person, you know. It was, it was exciting for me to work with other people who are as disciplined as I am. Are you, I mean, are you being absolutely accurate and honest when you say you're a disciplined person? Oh, yes, of course. You impose a discipline on your own music writing, on your own work. I mean, you don't just get up when you, you know, you hear what I'm saying to you. A lot of people in your position. A discipline doesn't mean that you make sure you have your breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning and you're out of the house by half past eight. A discipline is that you, if you conceive some things, then you decide whether or not it's worth following through. And if it's worth following through, then you follow it through to its logical conclusion and do it with the best, to the best of your ability. That's a discipline. Yes? And then Bowie says... I'm a fan of yours, quite a fan of yours. Are you really? Yeah. Well, let's get back to eclectic manifestations. Now, the film, we're going to look at a bit of it and then we'll talk a bit more about it. Here you are, having fallen to Earth, and as you're adjusting to the Earth's atmosphere, you gain the attention of a young lady in your hotel room. Listen, I must say before you put that on, it's assumed that I'm an alien from outer space. It's not necessarily true. So Russell says, are you still into the extraterrestrial bit? Are you still aware of forces apart from satellites that are moving around this globe or this planet or all around you, David Bowie? Of course, yes. What kind of eclectic manifestation do you have of this? A mountain or a tree is a manifestation of forces that we are not capable of dealing with. Do you go to church at all, do you? No, I... Pray? Yes, of course. But do you pray to mountains and to trees and to those physical manifestations or some kind of spirit? I don't think I would like to get into that over a 20-minute interview. Well, you wouldn't. And he goes to talk about uh, Bowie having choices in music and film and theatre. A bit of a renaissance man, I suppose. He said, you're in that kind of privileged position, though, aren't you, David, where you don't have to make any kind of decision like that? Oh, I have to make as many decisions as anybody else every day. Yes, I do have to make decisions. I consider myself fairly responsible. So this is where it's starting to get slightly testy, isn't it? Russell says, well, I wasn't doubting your own self-responsibility. What I'm saying is you're better equipped than most people to make that kind of firm decision about your own future. I'll do a... um, That's not what you said at all. Well, if that's not what I said... Ah, ah. It's what I meant, right? Yes, I can make firm decisions. And he says, uh, are you enjoying today? Are you enjoying this conversation? I think it's wonderful. I do enjoy it. No, I enjoy it a lot. It's a shame it's so short, because these days I'm very careful about launching into sort of... Uh, I've noticed that. ...discussion. It's only because I like conversation a lot, and it seems such a waste to just to, you know, fire away at random. This is lovely, though. I think it's moving at a very sensible pace. Good, good. And I'll tell you what I quite like, which I shouldn't like. I mean, doing the conversation at a distance of X thousand miles. And then he says, yeah, you know that since you've been away or quite recently, the newspaper has been having a bit of a bash at your mother and saying that she's a bit tearful from time to time and she's suffering a certain amount of anguish and that she doesn't hear from you an awful lot. Is that eyewash or is that real? That's really my own business. And that's how it's going to stay, is it? Yes. I see you still have a keen sense of rumour, Russell. Highly developed sense of rumour. Well, David, we're coming towards the end of our all-too-brief conversation. Oh, that's a shame. (laughs) I think what we might do is end with a bit of music. I gather that your end in beautiful downtown Burbank, you have some music with you. I mean, you're not going to get up on your feet and do it, but... No, I wish I could, actually, but time won't permit. But I know what it is. I'm very drunk in this. In what? 
And what you'll see now, I was very nervous, so I had a couple of drinks, which I never do. I really shouldn't have. It's lovely. It's very funny. Does it show? Oh, yes. Well, let's have a look at it. The song is called The Shape of Things to Come. No, it isn't. And David Bowie... No, of course it isn't. We're having a preview of The Shape of Things to Come. Ah. The song is called Golden Tears. Mr. David Bowie will come back to you. Years. You did get it wrong. You said tears. Years. Years, years. Why don't you introduce it from that end? And then he says, right, now I'll tell you what, David, we've had quite a functional conversation. I mean, you've functioned at your end. It's been very good. I liked it very much. Well, you functioned at your end and the satellites functioned in the middle of the sky and I functioned at this end and you wore a functional earpiece and you've had a functional class of whatnot at your side. And I hope the functional English functionally enjoy this. I'm functionally sure they functioning well will have done. But I'm going to hold you to your promise, which is when you do come back, we'll keep the airwaves open a bit longer. Meanwhile, can I wish you a happy Christmas? Let's have a telephone on the show. A phone in? Yes. Will you do that? I'd love to. Well, if we can get satellites across half the world, I think we can get a telephone from Clapham. It's just bizarre. It, it is. is. I mean, uh, he's just so horrible in it, uh, Russell Harty. I mean, I, you don't know if the delay didn't help, but it's just antagonistic from the word go it almost, is. isn't he's, it? He's like chipping away at Bowie all the time. And Bowie really is just kind of batting it all away. I mean, he just seems like he's bored. He didn't want to even be there. But he knows he's got a single to promote. So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie. But once again, before you go... If you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right. Mark, Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month month so if you can't resist simply go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things or one word and join up there's also a website bowiecheapthings.com book early 